Hey guys, what you're about to listen to is actually re-edited content from some years ago that I had pieced together recently to make a full documentary on the Opium Wars. Stating that, much to my embarrassment, my ability to pronounce Mandarin or, hell, even English words was abysmal back then. I certainly have come a long way, although I still am a complete moron. Just a bit better, I guess. I also just want to take a second to thank everyone who's joined the Patreon. You guys are awesome. For those of you who don't know, over at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel, I have all sorts of goodies. Early access to all of my content, polls to vote on the next subject, and above all else, exclusive podcasts. More than 12 or so at this point of recording. So please, if you want to support the channel, go check it out. Hello there! Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the complete history of the Asia-Pacific War from 1937 to 1945. We are currently looking at the major historical events that led up to the Pacific War, and today's episode is on the disastrous situation that led to the First Opium War of 1839 to 1842. So if you're not already subscribed and or left a like, please do so as this bird does cost a lot of seeds as you can see. What were the Opium Wars? As you will learn during this episode, they were two wars fought between China, Britain, and then later on, France was also involved in the second one. The major reason for the wars was the illicit opium trade that was being forced upon China by Britain mainly. Why does this have any relevance on the Pacific War? The Opium Wars are the first real example of when Western forces disrupted Asia at a significant level. The Opium Wars left China weak and divided, a perfect piece of cake to cut from for all the Western powers, and most importantly, Japan, who would take advantage of this later on. But now, let's get to why this all occurred. Significant maritime trade between Europe and China can be linked back to 1557, when Portugal leased an outpost in Macau from the Ming Dynasty. This led to other European nations following their lead, one of which being the British Empire. The British began to appear around Chinese coasts sporadically from 1635 onwards. Now, historically, China was always fearful of outside destabilizing influences, and as a result, they had a rigid trade network known as the Chinese Tributary System. The Chinese Tributary System was a loose international relations network used predominantly by Japan and Korea prior to significant European involvement. The system required kowtowing to the emperor, like such, even lower actually, uh, to acknowledge his superiority and that of China over all other nations. This was a tribute system with the intent to establish China as a superior nation who would overwhelm the other nations, making them unequal. The system also only allowed trade to take place in select ports, such as Zhuzhan, Jiamen, and Canton. After the Ming Dynasty fell to the Qing Dynasty, the tribute system became the Canton system. Relatively the same, however, now it was only limited to the port of Canton, and Westerners had to do business through a Chinese merchant guild known as the Guang. Now, the reason why Westerners, and particularly the British, wanted desperately to trade with China was for its goods, those being porcelain, silk, and most importantly, tea. The only currency allowed to pay for these goods in China was silver. Now, Britain had a slight problem. It had begun importing tea at an exponential rate, starting in the mid-17th century. 
where did Britain get the vast majority of its tea? Well, China, of course. Britain eventually became economically dependent on China for tea to sell to its citizens. You may think this is a simple issue, but the British population literally was addicted to the mild stimulant. Now, as you can imagine, in a situation where you can only buy Chinese tea with silver, Britain soon ran out of silver, and there was a trade deficit with China. This had gone on for over a century. Between 1710 and 1759, the imbalance was draining British silver, 26 million going into China, and only about 9 million coming out. On top of this growing deficit, Britain lost the American Revolutionary War. The war debts and the loss of the colony bankrupt Britain, and the silver had finally run out. With no silver to pay the Chinese, how was Britain going to get its tea fix? Here comes Mr. Opium. Opium had been around for hundreds of years and was usually used in a dry powder form, drank with tea for medicinal purposes. Opium was cultivated mostly in India, and India was being dominated by the East India Company since 1612. Britain occupied Java after the Napoleonic Wars and became the primary traders in opium. It was at this point Britain merchants realized they could reduce the overwhelming trade deficit with China by selling opium to the Chinese for silver to then pay for goods such as tea. Problem solved? Here comes the opium trade boom. Though it had been around forever, the East India Company pushed it to new limits. Initially, the Qing Dynasty tolerated the opium importation increase because the silver was going to the British, was still being spent on Chinese goods, and China remained in a surplus. However, the opium usage began to visibly affect Chinese society, and the trade surplus was soon turning into a deficit for the Chinese. This led the Qing government to place an edict against opium in 1780, and an outright ban by 1796. Ironically, the tea-addicted Brits had just gotten the Chinese addicted to opium. We now begin with a few stories of how people led China and Britain to war. So let's start with Sir McCartney. So in 1792, Viscount McCartney was sent to China under orders from King George III to establish a British embassy in the capital and to get permission for British ships to dock at ports beside Canton. Canton at this point had become overcrowded and was a complete bottleneck. The British were so eager to open up China, McCartney even was given instructions to offer the end of the opium trade, to sweeten the deal. Our friend McCartney entered Canton with a large amount of gifts for the emperor and pleaded with the Quahog to allow him to go to the capital and have an audience with the emperor. McCartney is brought all the way to the emperor's summer palace in Jaul with 600 gifts requiring 90 wagons, 40 wheelbarrows, 200 horses, and 3,000 native laborers to bring it all. Wow. These gifts were telescopes, howitzers, globes, musical instruments, carriages, and even a hot air balloon complete with a balloonist to operate it. Imagine that. I wonder what this situation was like for that guy. He was just going to be stuck in China for the rest of his life. Now here's where we get into some trouble. The Qilong Emperor expected all of these gifts to be tribute because McCartney was a barbarian. The Chinese even nailed a sign to McCartney's ship reading, Tribute from the Red Barbarians. McCartney, on the other hand, believed he was bringing gifts from one sovereign nation to another. The Emperor also refused to meet McCartney inside the palace itself. Instead, he would meet in a horse-haired yurt outside the palace, which was used as a hunting lodge. 
this was done on purpose to snub McCartney and uh, any chance of him being seen as an equal. Now comes the issue of kowtowing. Kowtowing was the practice of bowing, kneeling, and then placing one's forehead on the floor nine times in front of the emperor, as all tributaries had done for centuries. So the Chinese immediately demanded McCartney kowtow to the emperor, which he begrudgingly was willing to do for the sake of the mission, but on one condition. Believing to be the bearer of the proudest and most powerful nation on earth, McCartney demanded the Mandarin courtiers of the same rank to him to kowtow to a life-size portrait of King George III that he conveniently brought with him. Imagine that. The Mandarins laughed at this outright because they believed they were the bearers of the proudest and most powerful nation on earth, and you see where this is kind of going. In the end, McCartney failed, and he left China empty-handed, to which he compared the emperor, uh, the empire, excuse me, to an old, crazy, first-rate man-of-war which a fortunate succession of able and vigilant officers had contrived to keep afloat. On top of this, the emperor sent a letter to King George III stating China required nothing of Britain because it had everything. The strange and costly objects that they sent were of no interest to him and they were of no value. The Chinese had no use for British manufactures. This was rather harsh, don't you think? Um, did the hot air balloonist have to stay in China or did they let him go? I could not find any information on this poor fellow. Now, while opium was officially illegal in China, it was still being smuggled in by the East India Company, who held a royal charter in trade for China. The British didn't want to either bankrupt or run the Chinese noses in the illicit trade. Britain had a fine-tuned equilibrium with the trade, which was working in their favor. Then, a technological innovation in Britain upset this equilibrium. You see, the invention of the steam engine resulted in the mechanized production of cotton, by factories in northern England. Soon, the market flooded with mass-produced textiles whose surplus found a ready market in India, and whose merchants paid cash, not silver. To pay for the ever-increasing amount of cotton, the Indians needed to cultivate and sell more opium. As a result, opium flooded into China, and its distribution was bottlenecked all in Canton. Here comes our friend, Mr. William Pitt Amherst. Amherst was given the same task as McCartney in 1816 to meet with the new emperor of China, Jiangqing. Amherst was also given the advice to not kowtow to the emperor by King George III himself because this would result in another tributary relationship. Seeing the problem immediately, the Mandarin courtiers thought up a way to save face for both parties. They volunteered to clear the emperor's throne room and have Amherst kowtow to the emperor's empty chair. Amherst agreed to bow and to genuflect, but refused to put his face on the floor. That scared me. And especially not nine times. The courtiers then made a rather hilarious plan. They woke Amherst in the middle of the night and quickly brought him to the throne room, half asleep. They thought he would be so disoriented and tired to resist the kowtowing. A Mandarin courtier even tried to shove Amherst in an attempt to make him put his face on the floor, but Amherst's trusty assistant, Stanton, grabbed him by the elbow, catching him before he could fall. In the end, Amherst left China without even seeing the emperor, and this was humiliating. So now in 1833, 
a reform-minded British Parliament abolished the East India Company's monopoly in China. This left China open to all British comers, and within a year, the amount of tea imported to Britain quadrupled. The trade in opium to pay for all this tea in 1830 was 18,000 chests. By 1833, it went up to 30,000 chests. Imagine that. A large reason for the increase in demand was the innovation in China's use of the drug. Typically, opium had been swallowed in a beverage form. Then, in the 18th century, the Chinese began smoking it. Opium affected China dramatically. Not only was draining silver out of China, but many Chinese across the socioeconomic ladder were laying off work to smoke up. Shopkeepers, servants, soldiers, and even Taoist priests were drifting into a week-long escapade, uh, smoking opium in a hut. So after the East India monopoly ended, the British realized they required a representative to be a Taipan or chief executive in Canton to control and conduct this trade. The first chief superintendent was Lord Napier, who arrived in Macau in 1834. Napier was a tall, thin, gangly, red-haired man. Unfortunately, Napier's physical appearance was in line with China's comical stereotype of the red-haired barbarian. Napier's orders were to protect British trade. Protect British trade, excuse me. Open up more Chinese ports to British merchants, and yet again to establish an official presence in the emperor's court. Napier was also explicitly told not to do anything in regards to the illicit opium business, strictly hands-off policy. Napier had a rude reception, to say the least, arriving into Canton. The viceroy basically gave him the cold shoulder. Now, at this point in time, there were European factories in Canton. These were living quarters and the business quarters for Westerners. Now, after some rocky engagements with the viceroy of Canton named Lucun, there came some problems. Lucun became annoyed at Napier's arrogant behavior. He was British after all and ordered him to leave Canton and return to Macau. To further the point, Lucun also halted all trade with Britain until Napier left. Pretty rude. Now, Lucun's edicts actually delighted some British merchants, who now believed that some sort of intervention by the British government may occur to aid their pockets. The largest and most influential trading companies in Canton, Jardin and Matheson, took this opportunity to urge Napier to retaliate for Lucun's atrocious behavior. Napier took this advice and sent a letter back to England urging that force be used against China. His letter read, Three or four frigates and brigs with a steady few British troops would settle this thing. The exploit is to be performed with a facility unknown even in the capture of paltry West Indian islands. So on August 16, 1834, the Viceroy of Canton enacted a partial embargo on British imports, leading Napier to write another letter to Britain calling for military intervention. Napier's letter read, What can an army of bows and arrows and pikes and shield do against a handful of British veterans? Meanwhile, Napier decided to bypass Lucun and make his case directly to the residents of Canton, arguing they would be hurt by the trade embargo with Britain. This enraged Lucun, as you can imagine, who threatened to embargo all British trade permanently and force all British residents out of Canton. 
Chinese soldiers began to surround the factory with the residents inside. Napier ordered three frigates, Andromache, Omojin, and Louisa, to come to Canton, which was guarded by two bogey forts. Napier knew the Chinese would attack the ships and ordered Captain Blackwood to fire back and destroy the fort's cannons. When the British ships came, the bogeys' 60 cannons began to fire, completely shooting overhead of the British ships. You see, the cannons they were using were very outdated, and they were bolted literally to the ground, incapable of aiming properly. Jack Beechin said of the event, They were more like fireworks than piece of ordnance. The frigates sailed past the forts, destroying the bogey cannons, uh, while Charles Elliot, captain of Louisa, sat in a chair, sunbathing on deck as it occurred. Only two British sailors were killed during what became known as the Battle of the Bogue. But outright war was averted because Napier got very ill and had to leave. That's really convenient. The Duke of Wellington, as a result, canned Napier and replaced him with John Francis Davis, who immediately refused the terrible job when he figured out what, was, what it was going to be like. Then our sunbathing captain friend, Captain Charles Elliott, was appointed Chief Superintendent of Trade in June 1836. Foreign Minister Lord Palmerston ordered Elliott to make sure tea continued to be safely shipped out of China and into the teacups of English drawing rooms for the ritual afternoon tea. The opium trade was to be ignored as it was paying for the tea. So on November 1836, the Daozhong Emperor banned the importation and use of opium in China as it was in a full crisis. The number of Chinese addicts at the time Elliot took office was estimated between 4 to 12 million Chinese. The Viceroy of Canton during all of this completely ignored the business as he was corrupt and instead brutalized the local Chinese merchants instead of attacking the British. That must have pleased the Chinese very much. Thus, in 1838, Zhao Daozhong sent, and I apologize again, I hope I'm pronouncing these right, Lin Jiazhu, the governor of Hubei and Hunan, to take on the crisis. Lin Jiazhu had an impeccable reputation, having suppressed the opium trade in Hubei and Hunan provinces prior. Nicknamed Blue Sky because it was said that he was as pure as an unblemished and cloudless sky. It's actually quite beautiful. High Commissioner Lin Jiazhu sent a memorandum to the emperor complaining that Chinese customers spent over 100 million taels of silver and opium, while the entire Chinese government budget was only 40 million taels. He warned, If we continue to allow this trade to flourish, in a few dozen years, we will find ourselves not only with no soldiers to resist the enemy, but also with no money to equip the army. So Lin first sent a letter to Queen Victoria appealing to her morality and sense of justice to stop the illicit trade. The letter probably never even got to her. Regardless, there was no response. Interesting fact, Lin's personal translator was named Peter Parker. I have no reason to say anything about this. I just thought it was kind of silly and funny that you know, Peter Parker was the name of the person. Lin, in frustration spoke to the emperor, who accepted his evaluation of the situation and enacted draconian edicts. Opium addicts would be given 18 months to surrender their drugs to escape punishment. Foreigners who engaged in the trade would be beheaded, 
Chinese dealers strangled and even corrupt officials who took bribes for the trade would be put also to death. By spring 1839, the first opium war began. 1,600 residents of Canton, from dealers to users to dishonest bureaucrats, were arrested and over 3,000 chests of opium were confiscated. Lin knew this was just a mere fraction of the chests lying around and stepped up the threats by surrounding the factories with Chinese soldiers demanding that chests all be handed over. Elliot found out about this and he acted. He ordered all British ships docked in Canton to get to the relative safety of Hong Kong while he would go to the factories himself. Elliot met with everyone stuck in Canton and counseled a strategy. He would try to secure passports for the refugees, but was not optimistic and admitted that a failure to secure safe passage out of Canton would turn the situation into a hostage crisis. On March 28, 1839, the soldiers surrounding the factories turned it into a real siege, sealing off the area's streets. They banged huge gongs to the sleep-deprived inhabitants, forbid food, and only allowed in two buckets of water. They nailed giant placards to the walls demanding all opium supplies be surrendered at once. Elliot had little choice and capitulated, demanding all the opium traders surrender their stores to him, not Lin. He then gave his word that the British government would reimburse the merchants for their losses, a promise he was not authorized to make. A very big mistake. Elliot soon was handed 20,000 chests of opium worth an estimated $20 million. Please note, real estimates were probably 12 million, but they, they said 20. They were probably fighting for more. So, on May 24th, 1839, Lynn believed that the British had surrendered all their stores and ordered all the merchants who engaged in the opium trade to leave China and never come back. They sailed out of Canton under the command of Captain Elliot himself. Lynn then dumped all the opium into pits and destroyed them. Now, an enraged Briton had reimbursement debt of $20 million to pay to their merchants, and the road to war had finally emerged. So just to recap, because I know this might actually be a little bit confusing, the major uh, reasons for why the situation occurred. Number one, China's overwhelming conviction sustained by over 4,000 years of historical memory, representing the pinnacle of civilization on the planet and believing all other nations to be simple barbarians who should not be dealt with as equals, but instead as only tribute bearers. This angered Western nations who felt they were equals, such as the British Empire. Number two, China's monopoly on the production of tea and to a lesser extent porcelain and silk. Combine this with the insistence of being paid in only silver bullion. Britain became dependent and literally addicted to the tea. The bankrupt British began trading opium to China to meet their tea needs, and the Chinese became addicted to opium. Number three, the emergence of the British Empire as being the most technological, dominant, industrialized power in the world broke the trade equilibrium. China fell into a major deficit and had to act in order to protect its nation. So, to briefly summarize, Britain became economically dependent on importing tea from China, which it could only pay for using silver. This trade was a major silver deficit for Britain, and it went on for over a century. After the American Revolution, Britain lost almost all of its remaining silver, 
to war debts and could no longer purchase tea from China. Britain then came up with the idea of selling opium to China to receive silver to pay for its tea addiction. This led to the High Commissioner Lin Zexu to confiscate over 20,000 chests of opium from British merchants while taking British factories in Canton hostage, which was under a siege. The chief superintendent, Captain Charles Elliot, promised that the British government would reimburse the merchants, which the British government never agreed to do. So, Charles Elliot messed up when he promised the British merchants that the British government would compensate them for the confiscated opium. The British government, as a result, promised $2.5 million of compensation, which was just a mere fraction of the $20 million lost. By May 1839, the merchants began complaining to Parliament for British troops to be sent to extract the compensation from the Chinese. By June, Elliot allied himself to the merchants' cause and asked the foreign secretary for warships and troops. During all of this opium business, which was going on, one confiscation effort was not going to stop it. Elliot ordered the remaining British left in Canton to evacuate so there would be no hostages at stake, and now he felt free to attack the Chinese. On June 10, 1839, the Chinese ships stopped British ships from bringing food and water ashore to the British who were stuck in Macau. Elliot warned Lin that if the Chinese ships did not stop doing this, conflict would occur. Lin countered this threat by stating the ships were being stopped because they were transporting opium, which they most certainly were. The situation was tense and was about to get worse. In Hong Kong, a Chinese warship arrested the comprador of a British ship, the Carnatic. This enraged British sailors, who demanded his return and planned revenge. On July the 12th, 30 seamen of Carnatic and Mangalore went ashore and got blind drunk on shamshu. It's a fermented rice alcoholic beverage, I believe. They soon began destroying property in town and beat up locals, one of which was named Lin Weiji, who died the next day from his beatings. Lin was furious by this and demanded the murderer of Lin Weiji to be handed over for Chinese justice, which the British presumed would be an execution. It most likely would have been. In Lin's words, He who kills a man must pay the penalty of life. Instead of handing anyone over, Elliot performed his own inquiry and court, which led to charges of riot and assault, but no murder or manslaughter. Go figure. Elliot refused to hand over anyone, and Lin saw this as British unilaterally denying Chinese sovereignty. Lin then officially forbid the sale of food or water to all British citizens, under penalty of death, until the murderer of Weiji was handed over. On August 24th, Macau's governor, Don Adrio Acasio de Silveira Pinto, I'm sorry, that's a little difficult name, announced the Chinese had ordered him to expel the British from the colony. The same day, two ships, the Harriet and Black Joke, arrived in Macau. Black Joke is a really cool name for a ship. The Black Joke had blood all over its decks. The entire crew disappeared, being towed in by the Harriet. The British soon learned that the night before, unidentified Chinese boarded the Black Joke as it passed Lantau Island, massacring the entire crew, reported by a sole survivor of the incident. Actually, this guy was holding on to one of the rudders on the back of the ship, and he just wasn't seen by the Chinese, apparently, and he survived the entire trip 
being dragged in the water. It's pretty fascinating when I read that little remark. Side note. A day later, the gunboat Valach arrived from India with news that another warship, the Hyacinth, would be arriving shortly. Elliot ordered everyone to sail out from Macau to Kowloon Peninsula above Hong Kong. Lin sailed out to find the British all stuck on their boats in Kowloon and made a naval standoff. Elliot realized the Chinese were again stopping food and water shipments to his people and demanded that food and water be given to them by 2 p.m. or else he would attack the Chinese warships. When 2 p.m. came without response, Captain Henry Smith of the Village fired on the nearest Chinese ship, and this is technically known as the first shot of the Opium War. The Chinese named it the Battle of Kowloon. The British fired grape shot and round shot at the Chinese, killing and wounding a few. The outdated cannons on the Chinese warships were aimed too high and missed all the British warships when they fired. Please take note of this as it's going to be a very large issue for the next two episodes. These cannons in question. The British ships soon ran out of cartridges and fled the scene with the Chinese in pursuit. But eventually they gave up. The Chinese reported to Lin a great naval victory over the British interlopers, including the sinking of enemy ships and inflicting 50 casualties. But in reality, the British ships were not sunk. There was no casualties on the British side. And uh, the British, honestly, they only reported maybe one drowned sailor. So it, uh, they were lying. Lin made a surprising compromise by asking Elliot to deliver him the drowned sailor's corpse that I just mentioned, to be served up as the murderer of Weiji. The supposed reason for all of the conflict in question. Elliot refused, because handing over even a corpse would be surrendering British judicial sovereignty. Luckily for Elliot, the Hyacinth arrived, and a letter from the Foreign Secretary, Palmerston, on October 20th, 1839, arrived. The letter informed him that the next summer, 16 British ships with four troops would arrive to rescue them from Kowloon, Hong Kong Harbor. While Elliot went, wanted to wait for reinforcements to arrive, he had another problem. British merchant captains had been striking a deal with Lin, promising to not trade opium. Under the penalty of death, a contract that belittled British sovereignty was made between them. Elliot made the decision to act out before more captains signed these contracts, which really went over his head, to be honest, and he ordered a blockade on the Pearl River. When the British ships got to Chumpei on the Pearl River, they found a fleet of 15 Chinese war junks, 14 fire ships, all commanded by an old and revered admiral, Khan Chiampei. Elliot hesitated to attack. But Captain Smith of the Volage demanded that they strike at the Chinese. Khan anchored then his ships directly between the British warships and the merchant ships, forcing Elliot to give in to Smith's demands. The British ships went broadside and fired on the Chinese. The Chinese warships' stationary guns could not aim effectively and fired over the mass of the British warships yet again. One lucky volley hit the Chinese warships' magazine, exploding it. This caused a massive panic, and the Village scored more hits at closer range, taking out another three Chinese warships. The, Chi the entire Chinese fleet fled, leaving Khan's flagship alone, in which he made a suicidal last stand, firing upon the British. Elliot and the British were so impressed by old Khan, they honestly just allowed him to flee unharmed. This fleet battle was known as the Sea Battle of Chumbai, 
where over 26 Chinese warships, the largest fleet that they could muster, was bested by only two British warships, and not a single British casualty occurred, whereupon around 15 Chinese had died. News of the sea battle reached British government, who remained in denial on the reasons for the friction, that being the illicit opium trade. On June the 4th, the Bombay Chamber of Commerce now petitioned Queen Victoria demanding compensation for the confiscated opium and military action to prevent future seizures. On April 24th, 1840, the British cabinet met to deal with the China problem. Goaded by his secretary and state of war, Thomas Bamington Macaulay, Prime Minister Melbourne came up with an ingenious way to finance the war against China. Frankly, we're going to make China pay for it. Honestly, this is what he said. So the British saw the event as a quick and easy victory. They would force the Chinese to pay reparations, which would serve to pay off the opium confiscated debt to the government. So it was a win-win. To save face in the public opinion, however, the British government stated that millions would be spent in the defense of British subjects in China, but not a single penny of compensation over opium. Not a single vote would even speak of reimbursement. They needed to keep very quiet about this. On top of all this, some British war hawks floated the idea that after hostilities brought upon China to heal, perhaps the country would become a British jewel similar to the British Raj. Palmerston sent orders to Elliot to prepare for official war. In his letter, Palmerston instructed the blockade of the Pearl River, Yangtze River, and the capture of Chushan Island, and to then negotiate with the Qing officials. His second letter was for the emperor, which demanded to be treated with respect due to the royal envoy by Qing authorities, secure the right of British superintendent to administer justice to British subjects in China, compensation for destroyed British property, to have the most favorable trading status with the Chinese government, the right for foreigners to safely inhabit and own property in China, ensure that if contraband is seized in accordance with Chinese law, no harm comes to the persons of British subjects carrying illicit goods in China, and the Canton system, ask for the cities of Canton, Amoy, Shanghai, and Yingpo, and the province of northern Formosa to be freely open to trade for all foreign powers, and lastly, secure islands along the Chinese coast that can easily be defended and provisioned or exchanged capture islands for favorable trading terms. So, on June the 9th, 1840, Palmerston's promised military assistance to Elliot arrived. Three third-rate ships of the line ships Wellesley, Blemheim, and Melville, four-armed steamers Atalanta, Enterprise, Madagascar, and Queen, and a small armada of 27 troop ships, all bearing with the 26 Cameronians, the 18th Royal Irish, and the 49th Bengal volunteers all came to save China from the Chinese, quite frankly. And of course, the ships brought with them secretly 10,000 chests of opium. Don't forget, opium is being traded the entire time this war is going on, and never stopped. Sir George Eliot, the cousin of Charles Eliot, to make this even more confusing, joined the Armada to make this more complicated, and both Eliots boarded the Wesley, sailing for Trushan Island. On July the 1st, the Armada anchored in the harbor of Jinghai on the Chushan Island, 100 miles southeast of Shanghai. 
12 Chinese warships followed the British Armada from a safe distance. The British sent an envoy demanding the surrender of Chushan in 24 hours or to face the consequences. 24 hours passed and the Chinese did not surrender. At 2 p.m. on July the 5th, the Wellesley fired a single cannonade at a tower which served as a buffer for Dinghai, a mile inland. The Chinese responded with a single shot. Then they began returning volleys for about 10 minutes as Lieutenant Colonel George Burrell, commander of the 18th Brigade, led a landing party in small ships. Inexplicably, the Chinese ceased fire as the assault team approached ashore. The British made good use of the ceasefire by blowing up four Chinese warships. The British guns demolished the fort's towers and seawalls as men landed ashore where there was no one to fight. The Chinese defenders had fled almost as soon as the gunfire began, and the brigadier Zhang had his legs blown off by a bombardment and was fleeing on a litter. A detachment of Indian soldiers set up an artillery position on a hill overlooking Dinghai and began to shell the defenseless inhabitants. The British, without losing one man, planted the flag by the Joss House after 45 minutes between landing and taking the hill. The Chinese dead numbered around 13. News came to Peking where terrified mandarins lied to the emperor about the crisis and making it seem like the British were weak and ineffective. Take note of this as the emperor will be fed propaganda by his own people during the entire war as they were too afraid to admit how serious the situation had become. Qishan, a high-ranking Manchu official, replaced Lin after he was discharged for his failure to solve the opioid crisis. Elliot met with Qishan in Beihebei on the Pearl River to negotiate as the capture of Chushan certainly threatened the emperor. Qishan demanded a promise that the British would cease exporting opium. Elliot said he didn't have the power to grant such a concession and argued that if the Chinese wanted the opium trade to end, they should simply stop using it. This argument would be used consistently by British during the war. It's quite cute. Elliot then forcefully demanded reparations for the 20,000 chests of opium that were confiscated to reimburse British for the war. Kushan called these demands absurd, and talks began to lead nowhere. Kushan advised that should they all meet in Canton instead, obviously trying to get all the British far away from the capital and the emperor, you know, as soon as possible, because he was under threat during all this. Elliot felt the fleet was unprotected in Beihubei, and he sailed away, giving the Chinese the impression the invaders were not continuing the war. On November the 25th, 1840, a 660-ton steamship named Nemesis arrived at Macau. Remember, this ship's name, as it becomes a nightmare and a legend during this war. An exemplar of the state of our technology, Nemesis was the first steam-powered vessel to round the treacherous Cape of Good Hope. Steam power was to make its worldwide naval debut in the First Opium War. The Nemesis arrived during the next parley between Kishan and the Elliots on November the 29th, 1840 in Canton. This time, Elliot demanded the opening of Amoy, Fuzhou, Ningbo, and Shanghai, the surrender of an unspecified island, and the reimbursement for the confiscated opium alongside reparations for British war costs. Qishan agreed to pay 5 million over 12 years. Elliot demanded 7 million in 6 years and the surrender of Amoy and Chushan as permanent British 
possessions. They eventually agreed on 6 million, but Kishan flat out refused the territorial demands. By 1841, with no movement from either side, a rumor came about that the emperor had decided on further war. Elliot began preparations for an attack on Chimbai and told Kushan that the strike would happen on January the 7th. As promised, on January the 7th, 1,500 Indian soldiers, 100 British Marines aboard Nemesis, Enterprise, Madagascar, Calliope, Hyacinth, Larn, Samarang, Druid, Modest, and Columbine attacked Chumbai. They targeted the walls of Taikoktau, I probably mispronounced that one, sorry, and 8,000 men within the forts returned fire, but stopped only after a few minutes. The Chinese cannons had been tied down and couldn't be aimed at the invaders. How many times am I going to mention Chinese cannons not being able to aim? Very many times. Probably in the next episode too. Anyways... The Anglo-Indian force took advantage of the ceasefire and the Marines went over Chumbai's earth walls at 9.30 a.m. The elite Manchu warrior troops waved flags and banged on gongs in defiance beginning to open fire, but volleys from the British men-of-war soon knocked out their guns. The Manchus had believed propaganda at the time that stated the British killed all prisoners, so they resisted brutally of which uh, one English participant recalled, quoting, a frightful scene of slaughter ensued, despite the efforts of British officers to restrain their men. By 11 a.m., the Chinese flag was lowered and the Union Jack flew up in its place. 600 Manchus had died, 100 were taken prisoner, and the British had roughly 30 casualties, none of which were fatal, apparently, of these 30 wounded men, apparently it wasn't even caused by the defenders, but rather an accident, an explosion from an overheated artillery piece. I think it goes without saying that the British officers that are uh, giving this piece of information are stretching the truth a little bit. The Chinese defenders fled the city as British ships shelled them. The, the nemesis set ablaze 11 Chinese warships at anchor using Congrave rockets. The Chinese artillery at the fort and on the war junks did not return fire. To escape the hellstorm bombardment, most defenders fled or jumped in the water where British gunfire killed many who were trying to swim away. Those inside the forts were burned and disfigured with their adequated matchlock gunpowder exploding on them, added to the British gunfire also. The seizure of Chumbai was followed by a naval battle at Anson's Bay, which was little more than a rout. The steamship Nemesis demonstrated that it was a navy unto itself, firing on 15 Chinese war junks alone. One Congrave rocket from Nemesis had the blind luck of hitting a Chinese junk powder magazine, blowing it to pieces. The remaining junks began to flee, and Nemesis just followed them. Honestly, if you read accounts about this ship, Nemesis, it's incredible. This terrified them. No one had ever seen a warship like this. Kushan met Elliot for another parlay at the Lotus Flower Wall, 26 miles south of Canton. Elliot showed up with an intimidating entourage of 50 Royal Marines and 15-member Fire and Drum Band members. By January 20th, 1841, they negotiated what would be known as the Chumbai Convention. The British agreed to buy Hong Kong for $6 million, ambassadors would be exchanged, 
all contact between the two powers would be direct and official. No more. It would be official that there would be no more tribute-bearing barbarian situations. So the trade would resume. The British also agreed to return the captured forts, including Chushan Island. The Chinese were to pay $6 million in reparations for the war costs, thus completely neutralizing the purchase of Hong Kong, if you think about it, making it free. Uh, Kushan presumed that the emperor and his court would agree to this indemnity because they planned to extort the sum of money from the Hong merchants, which they did. So the Chinese had a little, little sneaky deal in all this as well. Palmerston was outraged when he found out that Elliot did not demand reimbursement for 20,000 opium chests. And the emperor was very outraged by Kushan for selling Hong Kong. When Elliot received news from Palmerston, it read that the British government would not ratify the agreement. On the same day, the emperor ordered Kushan to stop negotiations with the barbarians because military reinforcements were being sent to Canton from the interior of China. 70-year-old General Yang Fang was sent, an unlikely choice for Generalissimo to be the last hope for China to wrestle sovereignty from the encroaching British. Fang Yang was reportedly so deaf at this point in his career, he gave orders to his men in writing only. The emperor also enlisted his cousin, Yishan, to be the new diplomat to Canton. On February the 1st, 1841, despite the Chumbai Convention not being agreed upon, Elliot unilaterally proclaimed Hong Kong British territory. Why not? Yushan met Elliot again at the Second Bar, an island 20 miles southeast of Canton, refusing to put the imperial seal on the Convention of Chumbai. None of this mattered, of course. Kushan had already been fired by the emperor, and he was simply too embarrassed to let the British know. On February the 26th, 1841, in order to secure the Canton Riverway, the Melville, Queen, Wellesley, Druid, Modest, began to shell forts on Wangtong and Unyongoi, oh, I'm so sorry, I probably wrecked that name, islands. The stationary guns of the forts yet again shot over the British ships aimlessly, as... They sadly always do in this. Within 15 minutes, the Chinese stopped firing as Anglo-Indian soldiers landed on Wangtong. The unfortunate Chinese crammed into trenches, begged for mercy. It is reported that the Indian soldiers began executing prisoners while British officers tried to stop them. But I would take that with a grain of salt. It again smells like British propaganda. When the forces took the empty forts, it was found out that the defenders had begun retreating as soon as the landing had even begun. Within two hours, the forts of Anyungwai were also taken with minimal effort. Elliot almost died during all of this when a cannon ball was shot at him while he was reclined in his hammock on deck of his ship. How truly British of him. Over a thousand Chinese were taken prisoner, Old Admiral Khan was found dead with a bayonet in his chest, unfortunately. The British gave the old warrior a cannon salute from Blemheim and allowed his family to retrieve his body and sail off with it. With all the forts fallen, uh, the mouth of the Canton River and the gateway to Canton now belonged to the British. The British continued to Canton, removing barrier chains and demolishing forts as the Armada approached Canton City. Its 10,000 residents began to flee. The harbor was too shallow for Nemesis, so Elliot took her unaccompanied up the Canton River, destroying more forts and nine Chinese warships, because the Nemesis 
was certainly just a, a nightmare <laughs> to do this solo. The Chinese had never seen a steamship before, and the Nemesis was literally, you know, it could just handle them. So the emperor had Kishan arrested and put into chains, his entire fortune and land taken from him, and he was sentenced to hard labor in China's northern border with Russia. Poor Kishan. On March 13th, 1841, the British had seized Canton, destroying all Chinese ships and harbor and all the defensive structures within the city. A representative, Hao Kui, the most influential Chinese merchant who dealt with the British, begged Elliot for a truce on behalf of General Fang. However, however, this would be, it would just turn out to be a feint. While the truce occurred, the opium trade resumed, now under full British protection. Elliot turned a blind eye to the illicit trade, of course. General Fang urged the emperor to allow the opium trade to continue because he reasoned if the British occupied themselves with making money, perhaps they would have little time for war. He was probably right. Anyways, the emperor dismissed this, saying, if trade were the solution to the problem, why would it be necessary to transfer and dispatch generals and troops? Fair point by the emperor. By the end of March 1841, Elliot and his staff decided to attack Amoy, about 400 miles northeast of Canton, with a date set for the second week of May. Chinese troops began to amass around Canton, and Fang uses as a bargaining chip. Elliot headed... The, he did the warning, but instead of suing for peace, he cancelled the attack of, on, on Amoy and concentrated on the armed camp at Canton. May 25th, 1841, Nemesis towed 70 sailing ships full of 2,000 troops to Qingpu, two miles northwest of Canton. It was the ideal location to march on the massed Chinese forces at Canton. Before they could attack on May the 27th, however, a Mandarin waving a white flag arrived at a nearby fort. While waiting for the Chinese commander to negotiate on May 29th, General Fang suddenly broke the truce and attacked Canton with the battle cry, Exterminate the Rebels. Chinese troops began looting and tearing down the factories in Canton, but the British safely sailed up the Pearl River, bombarding the walls of Canton while they did so. The occupiers of Canton numbered 20,000 and began to fortify the city. Another ceasefire was agreed to, this time, the Chinese promised to pay $6 million within seven days if the British did not attack and or sack Canton. Yi Shan came to Canton to oversee the payment of $6 million. Having deemed Canton factories safe for its residents, Elliot turned away from Canton to sail for Hong Kong now. Unfortunately, on April the 30th, 1841, Elliot was dismissed by Palmerston, while he was in Hong Kong preparing for an attack on Amoy still. Elliot had enraged Parliament too many times, and was giving meager settlements with the Chinese. Didn't look good on him. Six million was a fraction of the cost of the 20,000 chests of opium. Elliot's replacement was to be Sir Henry Pottinger, a previous diplomat for the East India Company, as Sir William Parker became Commander-in-Chief and Major General Go would command land forces. On August 21st, 1841, the new armada of 32 ships and 27,000 men set en route for Amoy. Amoy was fortified with 200 guns to defend the harbor, 42 guns and 10,000 troops to defend the citadel alone. On nearby Kolongzhu Island, which protected the approach to Amoy, was, six, was over 76 guns. Modest, blonde, 
and Druid blasted the walls of Kolongzu from over 400 yards away, while Kolongzu's guns could do absolutely nothing. After 96 minutes of fire on Amoy, the Chinese guns fell silent and the British troops landed without opposition. 26 Chinese warships were all put up commission in harbor. Sir Hugo personally led a bayonet charge, circling around the fortress on Amoy as the Manchu defenders shot back with matchlock rifles. The Manchus were utterly destroyed and their commander committed suicide by drowning himself. When the invaders searched for loot, there was none to be had as the defenders had run off with all of it. After weeks of delay due to storms, the armada left a garrison to defend Amoy and then set off yet again for Chushan. By September 25th, 1841, the armada attacked the fort of Dinghai on the island of Chushan, taking it while only receiving a single casualty. The Manchu commander, General Gyal, slit his own throat when he realized the battle was lost. The Chinese had over 1,500 casualties. Yeah, some of these Chinese commanders, they, they got it rough. During this time in September, the British ship, Nerbuda, was transporting British and Indian troops and it went around Taiwan. In March, the Brig An, transporting opium, was also going around Taiwan. Chinese soldiers were able to seize them, they stripped them naked, and put them all in chains. The Chinese would propagandize this as a major naval victory to the emperor receiving praise and rewards even. Over 197 prisoners were then executed, which would add much fuel to the British cause. After a week in Dinghai, the British left a garrison and proceeded now to Jinhai, 10 miles east of the mainland. On October the 10th, they attacked 4,000 Chinese troops defending the city and its citadel. By flanking the enemy, Go, who commanded the British land forces of 1500, managed to take the fort in less than 24 hours after a vigorous pounding by the ships Wellesley and Blumheim. By early afternoon, Jinghai belonged to the British, who suffered three fatalities, while several hundred Chinese died defending the city. On October 13th, the British attacked Ningbo, 10 miles southeast of Jinghai, and the city opened its gates to the, to the invaders without a fight, as the Royal Irish Band played St. Patrick Day in the morning. The British plundered around $160,000 worth of municipal funds, and the British would then settle there for the winter. Now, it needs to be noted, all these easy victories the British had, they were Pyrrhic, due to illness or all the garrisons required uh, to be left behind for the conquered territories. Go found of his 2,500 troops, they were reduced now to just 700 men capable of fighting. The emperor at last took action and he sent his other cousin, Yijing, to Xiaochou, 50 miles northwest of Ningbo, to recruit more Chinese to oust the invaders. Yijing was a veteran of wars against Muslim rebels in Zhejiang province. Unlike career soldiers, Yijing was a noble scholar and most of the men under him were scholars. They were sometimes referred to as intellectual weekend warriors who would be known to overcome fears by smoking opium. Needless to say, they didn't have the greatest military skill, and everyone kind of knew it at the time. On March the 10th, 1842, Yijing's ill-trained force of 5,000 intellectuals attacked Yingbo, 
where they were met the gates by impaled head with a sign reading, this is the head of the Manchu official, Lu Tela, who came here to obtain military information. Enraged by this, the attackers scaled the walls and ran to the center of the city, where 150 of Gao's men repelled the force, which appeared to be visibly impaired by opium, including the general Zhang Zhigong. Zhang reportedly collapsed in a narcotic daze with an opium pipe still in his mouth as his men fled, abandoning him. This must have been quite the scene. Uh, the British won this battle using howitzers, which tore the enemy into pieces, piling shattered corpses at a height of apparently 15 feet. Wow. Tragically, a volunteer force of 150 Aboriginal Chinese from Golden River were part of this attack. Instead of using their matchlocks, they took up their traditional spears and, when attacking, were annihilated by musket fire. Every single man died, all 150 of them, tragically. The regular Chinese forces suffered 500 casualties in the attack of Ningbo, and of course the British did not lose a man. All these reports are coming from British officers, so like I keep saying in this, grain of salt is needed. Uh, for failing to retake Ningbo, the emperor sentenced Yijing to death. But in a usual fashion, this turned into a more lenient sentence, and instead he was appointed to a position in Turkestan, which apparently was horrible. This was seen as a huge insult to him. Don't know what's wrong with Turkestan at the time, I guess it was rough. The next big battle would be on May the 18th, 1842, when the British landed at Champu, a town 75 miles northwest of Chushan. The British only found 300 Manchu who had barricaded themselves in a Josh house, refusing to surrender. As a result, the British blew up the stone wall and set fire to the house. When the British finally got into the house, to their absolute horror, they found all the Manchus had poisoned themselves and their wives and their children within. This was because there was a Manchu tradition to not be taken alive. The defenders valiantly delayed the fall of the city for a few hours. The next attack would occur on June 16 at Wusong, at the mouth of the Yangtze River, which controlled uh, the river flow all the way to Nanking. This would be known as the Battle of Wusong, where the British bombarded multiple forts on the river and captured Wusong and Baoshan. Hundreds of Chinese were killed and, wound and wounded as the British lost two men. So at least this time the British reported two, two men, because I guess it would have been too much to say that no one died again. On June the 19th, Shanghai was taken without a shot. The residents of Shanghai tried to bribe the British with $300,000 to not loot the city, but the British did so regardless. Despite Shanghai's strategic and commercial importance, the British stayed there for only a week before moving on to their real target, Nanking. But before the British could attack Nanking, the walled city of Xinjiang, 50 miles west of Nanjing, had to be taken. Excuse me, I keep saying Nanking, Nanjing. I think I'll, I'll say Nanjing from here on. Odd point of naming things. On July the 21st, 1842, three British brigades landed outside the city walls. Manchus and Mongolian bannermen fired down from the walls using 18th century guns called Jingals which were so heavy and unwieldy, they had to be fired from tripods. Grenadiers smashed through the city's main gate, bayoneting the Manchus. 2,800 defenders barricaded themselves in the city, many taking their own lives by strangulation, poison, or throat cutting. The, Man the Manchu commander, General Yilin, had everyone gather court papers 
pile them up high, and lit them on fire. Estimates were that over 1,000 Chinese were killed or wounded, while the British suffered roughly about 30 casualties, who they claimed all died from dehydration and not the Chinese defenders. How, how very cute of the British officers to state this. The emperor now panicked, as it seemed the British would get all the way to Peking. He appointed Yilibu, the viceroy of Nanjing and Yijiang, as plenipotentiaries. Plenipotentiaries. Excuse me, that was a difficult word. It was an English one for once to deal with the invaders. They were under orders from the emperor to do anything, promise everything, but halt the British advance before it reached the capital. I think I'm going to have something put up to define when I said the word plenipotentiaries. It's a very old-fashioned word. I imagine I have never heard that one before. I forgot in my research I even wrote this one down. My bad. British land forces approached the walls of Nanjing with 74-gun Cornwallis and Blondie. Before they could fire, Yilibu showed up the white flag immediately. I mean, thank God he did. Negotiations went on for quite a few days. Yilibu attempted an arrogant stance at the beginning, but Pottinger was quite blunt and threatening, going on to say, after Nanjing Falls, the capital was next. Yilibu was attempting the classic Chinese passive-aggressive ploy of using procrastination instead of negotiation, conceding nothing and hoping to worry the enemy rather than defeat them outright. The British had become so accustomed to this ploy by this point, they informed him that Nanjing would be attacked on August the 13th, promptly. The next day, Yilibu swallowed his pride and made a personal appearance upon the Queen, promising to begin serious negotiations now. Four days of back-and-forth negotiations created a treaty, but despite his claim of plenipotentiary, Yilibu asked to send a copy to the emperor for approval, which the British accepted. While waiting for word from Peking, Pottinger questioned Yilibu about the opium trade, which was the reason for the onset of the war, and the Chinese were actually very unwilling to talk about it. Promising to make the minutes secret, however, Yilibu suggested then the British stop the production of the crop in India, to which Pottinger countered that if the British stopped, some other nation would just pick up the trade in their stead. Pottinger threw in the face Yilibu that if your people are virtuous, they will desist the evil practice, and if your officers are incorruptible and obey their orders, no opium can enter your country. The Chinese realized the opium issue was a deal breaker, and the empire desperately needed a deal, so they dropped the matter completely. The Treaty of Nanjing consisted of 6 million towards the confiscated opium by Lin Zexu, $3 million in compensation for the debts that Hong Kong merchants owed the British merchants, and a further $12 million in war reparations for the total sum of $21 million to be paid over in three years. The Qing government was to release all British prisoners of war, and the British were to withdraw all troops from Nanjing. The British were to remain in Gulangye and Zhaobashan until the Qing government paid reparations in full. The treaty also handed over Hong Kong to Britain and the right of permanent residence in the ports of Canton, Amoy, Fuzhou, Ningbo, and Shanghai. The treaty made no mention of the cause of all this hardship, i.e. 
the opium trade. It ended the old Canton system, but it did not resolve the status of opium traffic, which was still in favor of the British, remember. For his service in settling the Chinese matter, the leader of the early Victorian Vikings, as the Times called them, Sir Henry Pottinger, was rewarded with the post of Governor of Madras. Charles Eliot did penance for his perceived failure, being appointed to the backwaters of Bermuda, Trinidad, and St. Helena, which was symbolically chosen as uh, the place where Napoleon was also exiled. It's kind of cool. Uh, Jardine and Mount Matheson both entered Parliament after the Chinese affair, pushing for more expansionism, because let's not forget that actual merchants were responsible for most of this, and this is all about money. Hao Kuo, the main Chinese merchant who dealt with Jardine and Melson, died of diarrhea a year after the Treaty of Nanking. Nanjing. Excuse me. Governor General Lin's effigy was placed at a museum. Under his statue was a plaque claiming he had destroyed 2.5 million dollars worth of British property, without mentioning that the property was opium and contraband. The emperor forgave Lin in 1845 and assigned him a new post in Canton, where he died shortly in 1850. Qijing remained in favor, while Yelubu was sent in exile, bound in chains by the emperor. That's the end of the First Opium War, and tragically, the Treaty of Nanjing would only be a truce and not an end to hostilities. Among the terms and conditions of the treaty, no mention was ever made of the opium, that which was, the, you know, that was the entire problem in the first place. Officially, the drug remained illegal to use and import. Unofficially, it continued to thrive as an illicit business, providing the conditions for a second opium war. Similar to the Treaty of Versailles, the Treaty of Nanjing caused more problems than it solved. China was under humiliating conditions, surrendering symbolic and practical forms of sovereignty to Britain. This would all boil over 14 years until outright aggressions, which would commence in 1856. So let's just summarize all this. This has been a really long episode, after all. The First Opium War was started by private merchants pushing the British Parliament over confiscated opium. The British Parliament realized they could go to war and make China pay for it. The British technological superiority won them the war alongside a pretty incompetent Chinese military. Chinese officials lied to their emperor about the status of the war, prolonging it and making it even worse. The entire war ended up with a very harsh and humiliating treaty, which would just be a precursor for yet again another opium war in the future. Let's just briefly summarize the situation. The 1842 Treaty of Nanking in many ways was similar to the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I and paved the grievances that led to World War II. The Treaty of Nanking was humiliating for China and it was a symbolic and practical surrender of her sovereignty to Britain. The treaty consisted of China paying $21 million to Britain over a three-year period, the release of all prisoners, Hong Kong was now Britain's colony, and Britain could now have permanent residence at the ports of Canton, Amoy, Puxhao, Ningbo, and Shanghai. This also ended the Canton system, which was a system in which Western countries could only trade within Canton. Last, there was absolutely no resolve for the status of the illicit opium trade, thus greatly favoring Britain as it would continue to thrive. 
Now, the grand vision of Northern England after the First Opium War was that its mass-produced cotton textiles would penetrate the newly opened Chinese market. This turned out to be a failure. China simply preferred their own homespun silk, cloth to British products. On the other hand, the British couldn't get enough of Chinese silk, and tea, of course. Between the two opium wars, the opium business became known in China as the poison trade. Another business that sprang up was the hiring of Chinese coolies to serve on boats and abroad. This business became known as the pig trade, and the term Shanghai actually came from the fact that most coolies were drugged up and kidnapped, thrown onto overcrowded and filthy ships with such a high mortality rate that half died on their way to work. It's quite awful. Now, not everyone in Britain agreed with this disgusting trade. Many faith networks fought alongside empathetic parliament leaders to combat the pig trade. They secured an enactment called the Chinese Passenger Act of 1855. And while this did not outlaw the trade of coolies, it codified and improved conditions in which they were transported. In 1850, the Daoguang Emperor died, and in his will he begged forgiveness for agreeing to sign the shameful Treaty of Nanking. His fourth son, Yang Fang, succeeded him at the age of 19. Yang Fang was an opium addict and spent almost all of his time with his concubine harem. Two major disasters added to the opium crisis, which ignited the Second Opium War. High government office was originally only obtained by rigorous examinations which guaranteed the competence of the ruling class in China. After the First Opium War, these positions became available to just about anybody with $800. The rich mediocrities came to power as a result, and the once industrious and educated Chinese bureaucracy decayed rapidly. On top of all of this, there was a major overflow in 1856 from the Haonghi River, destroying thousands of acres of rice paddies, and the capital began to starve, leading to rather drastic decisions. As has happened countless times in Chinese history, the decay of the imperial court combined with famine led to rebellion. This would be known as the Taiping Rebellion of 1850 to 1864, and I'll actually be covering this event in the next episode in much greater detail. An anti-Manchu revolt by native Chinese populations rose up, and it was almost toppled by the Manchu-run dynasty. The Taiping Rebellion began in the southeastern province of Gangji. The leader of the movement was Hong Jiquan. Hong's family was Hakka, a minority people in southern China with distinctive customs and language that set them apart from mainstream Han and Manchu society. Because remember, China consisted of a variety of people. Hong attempted and um, failed the imperial examination in 1837 for the third time in a row, leading to a complete nervous breakdown. The imperial examinations allowed people to take up positions in government office. In his delirium, he saw visions of an older bearded man with golden hair he called Elder Brother. This man gave him a sword and taught him to slay demons. This man was named Jesus Christ. Now I know all of you probably want to hear so much more about this character, and like I said, the next episode will cover this rebellion more thoroughly. But anyways, Hong was seen as a mystic who turned to Christianity and was extremely antagonistic towards Confucianism. He even attacked their shrines. Hong gathered converts, many of which were fellow Hakka. However, many triad organizations hoping to restore the old Ming dynasty joined his cause as well. 
Hong's radical forces were called the God Worshippers, and were hated by the Qing government and Westerners. They represented an anti-capitalist force who also bastardized Christianity. The Qing government feared that they would be overthrown by them. The Westerners feared that if the rebels took over, their treaties and trade network would be ruined as a result. By the fall of 1851, the God Worshippers went from a few thousand peasants to over a million troops. Part of their cult was the banning of the opium use, while the Qing armies were suffering from rates of 90% opium addiction. This led the rebels to have an overwhelming military success. Hong took Gangji, attacked Hunan, and even took Nanking. It was in Nanking where it seems Hong and his commanders got a little soft and settled down enjoying the city for over a decade. Now, in order to combat the rebels, the emperor hired Mongol mercenaries commanded by Prince Senglunqin, hope I pronounced that right, who we will call Seng from this point on. This was a huge gamble as the Mongols once ruled China and Seng was known to have pretensions to the Manchu throne. The gamble paid off, however, as the rebel infantry was no match for the Mongol riders. The Mongol armies stopped the rebels from threatening the capital of Peking, and this led the rebellion to do guerrilla warfare. We will now continue with the story of the Second Opium War, but also take into consideration this rebellion is occurring in the background the entire time. On February 1856, a French priest, Abbe Auguste Chapdelaine, was converting some Chinese in a village called Zilin in the remote province of Gangji. Unfortunately for Chapdelaine, the Taiping rebels took over Gangji and made it a resistance sanctuary. Chapdelaine was arrested and imprisoned, put in a cage set up in the village square. He was deemed in violation of Chinese law, and the Manchu authorities seemed to think that he was part of the God Worshippers. Ironically, Chapdelaine and other Catholics hated the God Worshippers because they were a bastardized proto-Protestant creed of rebels. The poor priest was beheaded on February the 20th, 1856, dismembered and eviscerated. The French press went on to claim that the Chinese cut out his heart and ate it. Historians believe this is just an urban myth, however. Um, France obviously was enraged, and the French representative in Canton, the Comte de Corsi, sent furious letters to the city's viceroy, Yi Mingchen. Yi knew the French had no stomach to fight, and chose to insult them by replying that the atrocity occurred because of a case of mistaken identity. He said that Chapdelaine dressed and spoke like a Chinese, so nobody knew that he was French. <laughs> the British would also encounter a major problem. On October the 8th, 1856, a Lorcha ship named Arrow was transporting rice from Macau to Hong Kong when it was seized by a Chinese war junk. You see, the Arrow was registered as a British vessel, thus giving in special access to some forts, but its entire crew was in fact Chinese. Like many other vessels, there was a British figure, head captain, Mr. Thomas Kennedy in this case, his presence on board protected the vessel, but on October the 8th, he was having dinner with another captain on another ship nearby. The Chinese authorities boarded Arrow and arrested her crew, bounding them and taking them aboard their war junk. It turns out a few of the Chinese crewmen were previously pirates, and the authorities knew about it. Mr. Kennedy protested all of this, of course, stating that the ship was in fact British registered vessel, and that they could not do this. Mr. Kennedy 
ran to the help of the British consul, Harry Parks. Parks rallied against the authorities, saying it was a gross insult and violation of national right that the Chinese had committed, stipulating the Treaty of Nanking that required the Chinese ask permission of the British consul before arresting a Chinese citizen serving under a British registered ship. Parks did not, however, check the registration. It turns out it had expired. Regardless, he deemed the crew to be handed over immediately. The Chinese commander explained that he could not hand them over, knowing that a few of them were pirates and they needed to be further interrogated. Parks refused to accept the situation and asked the governor of Hong Kong, Sir John Boring, to seize the Chinese war junks that had commandeered the arrow. On October the 14th, the British gunboat Coromandel took the Chinese vessel without a fight and towed it to Wampao. Yu Mingchen ignored the incident, trying not to provoke the British. At this point, Boring had a chance to inspect the registration of the arrow, which Parks did not bother to do so and figured out that it had thus been expired, and the Chinese were in fact not in violation of the treaty at all. Uh, despite this discovery, Boring was determined to goad Yi Mingchen anyways, and demanded the entire crew be handed over with a public apology within 24 hours. Yi returned the crew, but refused to apologize, pointing out how the British were in fact wrong. Yi's sly remarks seemed to have given Parks and Boring an excuse for hostilities. On October the 23rd, Parks ordered Rear Admiral Sir Michael Seymour to seize and destroy four barrier forts south of Canton. Two of the forts fired back at the British fleet before surrendering, and five defenders died. They would, in fact, be the first deaths of the Second Opium War. Seymour's easy victory inflamed Parks' war fever, and he sent word to Yi on October the 25th, demanding the British be allowed to enter Canton, or else they would bombard the city. On October the 28th, the steamer Encounter shelled the rooftop of the Viceregal residence. Yi responded with a bounty price on British heads of over $100. Within a day of bombardment, the British had blown a hole in Canton's walls. A force of sailors and marines poured through the hole on October the 29th, with the British planting the Union Jack on top of the wall. Oddly enough, even though the U.S. was officially neutral during all of this, one American envoy to Hong Kong, a James Keenan, was seen waving the Star and Stripes during the fort's attack, apparently visibly drunk. The British began to shell Yi Ming Chan's palace through the hole in the wall, but soon pulled out as they did not have nearly enough men to hold the city. Yi then sent word to Parks with an offer of truce, but Parks refused and instead made vague remarks about allying, allying himself to the god-worshippers. It was, of course, a bluff. The British saw the, saw the rebels as Jacobins and preferred to deal with the Qing dynasty. Now, in the meantime, the British continued the siege on Canton and attacked Chinese warships in the Gulf while also destroying local forts in the area. By November, trade had evaporated because of the siege, and our old friend Hao Kuao and other members of the Kohong merchants faced financial ruin. They tried to appeal to Parks and Boring, but it was to no avail. In December, Yi mistook the British lack of manpower for a lack of resolve and ordered the destruction of the western factories within the city. Yi's generous bounty of British heads led to an atrocity on December the 29th. The Chinese crew aboard Thistle which carried mail from Hong Kong to Canton, mutinied, and beheaded 11 European passengers, 
The heads were brought to ye for the $100 reward. This pressed Seymour to telegraph Britain of all the incidents that were occurring. The arrows and the thistle incidents provided the fuel for military actions. Boring asked the Governor General of India, Lord Canning, for reinforcements. He dispatched a full regiment of artillery to Canton on February the 9th, 1857. The Foreign Minister ordered Seymour to seize the entrance to the Grand Canal, thus cutting off the capital's food supply. The British Parliament debated over the China situation and Bowring's request for reinforcements to invade Canton. The Prime Minister predicted a wholesale massacre of European residents within Canton if the House did not back the war party. This led to the appointment of the popular Scottish and former Governor of Jamaica and British North America, James Bruce. James Bruce was the 8th Earl of Elgin and a direct descendant of Robert the Bruce, and he was going to be the new envoy of China. Lord Elgin held plenipotentiary. This means a diplomat is given full authority by the government. And he was given orders to acquire the right for Britain to send permanent ambassadors to Peking to conduct negotiations directly within the imperial court, demand the opening of new ports for British ships, to force the Chinese to comply with the provisions of the Treaty of Nanking, to use military force as a last resort. He was given joint military command with Lieutenant General Ash Burnham and Rear Admiral Seymour. Now on his way to China, Elgin got word of a new major catastrophe. On May the 10th, 1857, Indian troops of the East India Company Army stationed in Marut had refused to accept orders from their British officers. The entire garrison mutinied, killing the officers, their families, and many other Europeans. As word spread, similar outbreaks occurred within days, and the mutiny had become a wide-scale rebellion. Soldiers were joining the disgruntled Indian princes tired of the British Raj. Britain was in serious danger of losing complete control over its greatest imperial possession, and honestly the foundation of its world power. Elgin arrived in Singapore on June 3rd with letters from Lord Canning, the Governor-General of India, was waiting for him. Canning was in a crisis and asked for troops to be diverted to help him quell the rebellion. Elgin then sent 700 troops of the 90th Regiment to India immediately. Elgin then traveled to Hong Kong on July 2, 1857. Seymour, Parks, and Boring immediately pressed their new boss for an attack on Canton, which was backed by 85 British opium merchants. Elgin ignored their pleas and pressed for negotiations because he did not want to risk toppling the Manchu dynasty. This could have led to the balkanization of China in which the Taiping rebels could take control. Such circumstances would obviously not be favorable to the British trade. Baron Gros, Elgin's French counterpart in China, arrived a month after he did. Gros wanted to attack Peking instead of Canton while Elgin still argued for negotiations. In November, William Reed, the new American minister appointed by President Buchanan, arrived aboard steamship Minnesota. He said the position of the United States was to remain neutral in the inevitable conflict. Uh, lastly, Count Euphemus Putitain, I'm sorry for the pronunciation, Russia's emissary, arrived in Hong Kong with minimal firepower. He came uh, with a separate proposal for the emperor involving territorial demands in Manchuria to help deal with the Taiping rebels. Despite his efforts at negotiations, Elgin was eventually forced to give in to his war-hungry allies. December 
1857, three ships carrying 2,000 British soldiers from Calcutta sailed into Canton's harbors, followed by the French fleet under Admiral Rigaud de Genie. Algun and Gross sent Yi Mingchin separate ultimatums. France wanted the murderers of the father Chapdelaine brought to justice, reparations, and permission to operate unrestricted anywhere in Canton. The British demanded compliance with the terms and treaties of Nanking, and a permanent ambassador set up in Peking, alongside some unspecified reparations. Yi did not have the authority to satisfy their demands, nor the army to defend Canton. So he sat idle, while eight more British and four more French steamships arrived to add more muscle. On December the 21st, 1857, Elgin, Putantin, and Gros parlayed aboard the Baron's flagship, Audacieuse. They agreed to give Yi one more chance before shelling the city. They gave Yi a five-day deadline, upon which he never responded. So on December the 28th, the British French ships began to shell the city and its fortified towers. The bombardment went on for a full day, including incendiary rockets. The Chinese responded with only two shells. The incendiaries did their job, but Canton was burning. 500 French and British soldiers landed, making their way past the rice paddies into a cemetery. The, sol the Chinese soldiers hid behind tombstones while both sides fired upon each other. The Chinese mostly shot arrows and used gingals against the British rifles. The gingals were so cumbersome, they required two men to fire them, and the recoil knocked them back quite often. At the dawn on the 29th, the Europeans scaled the walls with little resistance. Looting began en masse, and Elgin sent Colonel Lemon with some Royal Marines to the city's treasury, where they seized 52 boxes of silver, 68 boxes of gold ingots, and the equivalent in tales of nearly a million dollars in cash. All of this legal plunder was put aboard the HMS Kolkata and dispatched back to India. Overall, 200 or more Chinese defenders were killed, and the Europeans suffered no more than 15 deaths while taking the city. By January the 5th, 8,000 French and British forces marched through Canton unopposed. Parks personally led a squad to capture Yi, who was trying to flee from his palace. Kuro and Elgin set up Yi's second-in-command, Pinkui, as the new puppet governor of Canton. Pinkui would be advised by a triumvirate of Parks, Captain Matinot, and Colonel Holloway. Yi was sent into exile to Kolkata aboard the Inflexible on February the 20th. Yi lived under house arrest until his death in 1859. It is reported that he starved himself to death. The British and French forces began to increase their position in Canton. By late May, a combined Anglo-French fleet of 26 gunboats prepared to attack the five mud Daku forts that guarded the mouth of the Behe River. D-Day, as it were, was to be May the 20th, 1858, and the emperor was on the verge of fleeing his own capital. The Dagu forts were surrounded by water, forming a natural bottleneck into the Bihi River. The Chinese inaccurately presumed the deep-hulled foreign gunboats would not risk entering the river during the low tide season. Seymour and Rigaud gambled and made a surprise attack at 10 a.m. on May the 20th. The immobile Chinese artillery had been aimed to hit ships at high tide, but the vessels entered during the low tide. Along with the artillery was a 7-inch thick boom made of bamboo blocking the riverway. The British sacrificed one ship, Coromandel, which rammed into the boom, destroying it and receiving a gash in its hull. The armada steamed through the gap while the Chinese artillery shot over their masts. The French 
Mitrael and the fusée, along with the British Comorant, fired at two Daku forts on the left bank, while the British Nimrod and French Avalanche and Dragon fired at the three forts on the right. The Chinese had some better luck with their Gengals. Unlike the artillery, they could, in fact, be aimed. Five British and six French were shot dead, and 61 others were wounded by Gengal fire. The Chinese lost over 100 men from the bombardment and rifle fire, however. The ashamed commander of the Dagu forts committed suicide at the Temple of the Sea God by slashing his jugular. With the successful bombardments, eight gunboats made their way up the Beihei River towards the critical stronghold of Tianjin. On June the 4th, 1858, the smaller armada arrived in Tianjin and met no resistance. The defenders, under the rumor that the emperor had fled and been overthrown, were willing to treat with the foreigners. The emperor had not been overthrown and sent commissioners to Tianjin to negotiate. He sent 74-year-old Yuan and 53-year-old Guan Shan, both military seniors. Elgin believed the entire campaign had been won and done and shrewdly left his younger brother, Lord Frederick Bruce, to continue negotiations. Please take note that Lord Bruce was nothing like his older brother and was known to be a moron, a complete dimwit. After many weeks of back and forth, the Treaty of Tianjin was finally signed on June 26, 1858. The treaty consisted of the rights of British, French, Russian, and United States to establish small embassies in Peking, the Chinese opening the ports of Nianzhang, Tamsui, Hongguo, and Nanking to foreign trade, the right of all foreign vessels to travel the Yangtze River freely, the right for foreigners to travel in the interior of China, which was actually forbidden at this time, and for China to pay over 4 million tails of silver to Britain and 2 million to France. You know, it should be noted that the Russians had a separate treaty of Anguin, signed on May 28, 1858. This gave Russia the left bank of the Amur River and parts of the south of the Stanovoy Mountains. Basically, it was just Russia grabbing territory from a weakened China on the side. When the Chinese representatives came back to the emperor with the signed document, he flat out rejected the humiliating terms. Why wouldn't he, right? Elgin's brother Bruce returned to London with the Treaty of Tianjin in 1858. Bruce was rewarded with the appointment of the first ambassador to China. Elgin left China in March 1859, thinking his work was done, hoping to retire in London for a while. As Elgin was on his way to London and Bruce was on his way back to China, they met up in Sri Lanka in April. The treaty had been signed by everybody except the emperor, and as a result of its compliance was not going to be met. Uh, this obviously enraged Bruce, who arrived at the mouth of the Beihei River on June 18, 1859, with a force of 16 warships to force the compliance of the treaty by going directly to Peking. The emperor ordered three bamboo boons, three thick, three feet thick across the Beihei River to block their armada. On June 25th, the viceroy of Chihili province, King Fu, strongly suggested the European ambassadors meet in Vitang instead of Peking to ratify the treaty. Bruce, enraged by all of this, ordered the ships to bombard the bamboo boons and Chinese cannons laid around them. For a change, the Chinese cannons were better aimed this time. Eight sailors were blown to pieces as they fired back. This is the first time in, uh, in a few episodes, I've actually mentioned the Chinese cannons did something. So it's starting to work. 
By early this evening, five British ships were immobilized and one sank. The British ships were now only past the first boom, facing Chinese guns on both sides of the river. At 7 p.m., as the Chinese fireworks illuminated the sky, Captain Shadwell and 50 Royal Marines and French soldiers under the French commander, Tricot, landed on the mud flats outside of the Dagu forts. The attackers waddled through mud up to their knees under fire from Jingals manned by the fort's defenders. The attack bridges and ladders they brought to scale the forts were completely destroyed in the gunfire. Stuck in mud, Shadwell and his forces were quickly pinned down and they were forced to retreat. The British and the French suffered high casualties. Shadwell was wounded himself and Trikelt was dead. More than 1,000 men were either killed or wounded. On July the 1st, Bruce was informed that another assault on the forts without reinforcements would be impossible and in fact suicidal at this point. To try and save face, Bruce reported to London that the sudden military prowess of the Chinese was because Russians secretly were helping the Chinese at the Dagu forts. Bruce claimed that men in fur hats with European dress were observed directing Chinese troops. This, of course, was all fabricated. It's just propaganda. Ironically resembles how the United States initially reported that Germans were commanding the Japanese forces at Pearl Harbor because it was inconceivable that an inferior race could get the better of them. You see the comparisons here. I thought it was a, a good example. The real reason the Dagu forts were so successful this time around was because of Mongol Prince Tseng, who had previously crushed the Taiping rebels. He was in command. As a result of the Dagu fort victory, the Chinese enjoyed a spectacle of Western representatives coming to Peking. The U.S. Ambassador Ward was tricked by the Chinese into traveling in a small wooden cart to Peking in order to humiliate him as a barbarian. The Chinese told him this was how the Russians liked to travel in China, and Ward went through the Kauto situation and refused to do so until the emperor became angry and sent him away. Ward then went to Pitang, where Chinese officials signed the treaty with him on August the 15th, 1859, without the emperor interfering. Because the emperor simply would interfere whenever he could. Back in Britain, Elgin argued to Parliament that an attack on Peking would help the god worshippers, and that a better strategy was actually to starve the capital out until they ratified the treaty. Bruce was ordered in April, 16, April 1860 to issue a 30-day ultimatum to the Chinese. The Chinese officials responded quickly for once on April the 5th, 1860, with a straight-out no. The Chinese were emboldened by the Dagu Fort victory and the inaction of the British at this point. It seemed that Bruce was completely out of his depth, and thus Britain replaced him with his older brother Elgin, who then returned to China in late April. Elgin's new orders were to demand for negotiations in the capital, an apology and reparations for the Dagu Fort incident, and of course compliance with the new Treaty of Tianjin. The British received a brand new weapon, the Armstrong field gun. This is impressive. It was a 25-pound gun with the accuracy of a rifle combined with the destructive power of a cannon. It was designed for scattering large armies by, uh, with exploding shells. The French were armed with an outdated Napoleon gun, which was its equivalent. On July the 26th, 1860, 150 British ships and 50 French ships steamed up the northern coast and landed in Vietang, eight miles north of the Dagu forts. From Vietang, a combined force of 1,000 British and 1,000 French traveled four miles en route to Tianjin, where they came across Prince Sang, whose cavalry 
was blocking the way. Hundreds of Manchus, Chinese, and Mongol cavalry were intimidating, so General James Hope Grant waited to assemble his forces. On August the 12th, 1860, Grant assembled 800 cavalry, which he ordered to go around the flank of the Chinese forces. The main Allied force would attack the defenders head-on with their three new Armstrong guns. When the Allies went within a mile of the Chinese, they began firing their Armstrongs, whose exploding shells scattered and tore the Chinese cavalry just apart. The defenders charged within 450 yards, where their guns would be more effective, creating 25 minutes of pure carnage. The Chinese, in a suicidal fashion, did not stop even as the Sikhs gunned them down with their carbines and pistols. Although outnumbered, the Chinese were forced to flee. The Allied flanking cavalry would have finished them off, but muddy conditions rendered them kind of stuck. The next day, General Hope Grant and French General Dumont-Tubin seized the town of Dangu, which offered them a great position to attack the Dagu forts. At dawn on August the 21st, 1860, eight French and British gunships began to shell the Dagu forts, while Armstrongs and other artillery were dragged through muddy flats 600 feet from the walls. The combined bombardment quickly knocked out the Chinese guns on the fort walls, and the defenders were forced to use gingals and matchlocks. At 6 a.m., a lucky shell hit a powder keg inside the fort, exploding violently. Then French General Collinot forced coolies into the fort's moats with scaling ladders on their shoulders for the French to climb the fort walls. That's horrible. General Hope Grant felt so guilty about the treatment of the coolies, he gave them an extra month's salary bonus. Ugh. Once atop the wall, the French bayonet charged everybody inside. The British blew a hole in the wall, and single file marched within. The Mandarin commander of the fort stood his ground rather than surrendering to Captain Prin of the Royal Marines, who quickly shot him with a revolver, and then took his peacock feather cap as a trophy of war. Almost 2,000 Chinese lay dead, while the British and French both lost around 200 men. The fall of the fort was a psychological blow to the Chinese, who, within five hours of surrendering, sent two emissaries to negotiate immediately. Unfortunately for the emissaries, they had to deal with British Consul Parks, who was a rage-filled xenophobe. Parks demanded that, in the next two hours, the other three dagger forts must be uh, capitulated, or they would suffer the same fate. White flags popped up on all three of the remaining forts, and now the way to Tianjin was open. Hope Grant went with an armada on August the 23rd. Tianjin was laid open without any defense, and Guliang, a senior Mandarin, was sent by the emperor to negotiate with plenipotentiary powers. The new demands were made to the Mandarin official, adding demands for a formal apology for the Dagu forts in 1859 to pay double the original reparation of 4 million taels of silver and to ratify the Treaty of Tianjin. In the meantime, Tianjin would remain under Allied control, allowing them to strangle the flow of food to Peking. The Westerners demanded yet again for a formal audience with the Emperor. This is becoming a broken record at that point. Although Guilang had plenty potentiary powers, he saw the terms to be so unacceptable, so he resorted to the old ruse that he did not in fact have plenty potentiary powers, which contradicted his original claims in the first place. Elgin recognized the old Chinese ploy, stalling tactic, because it had occurred so many times by now, 
that he, he wrote in his diary on September the 8th, 1860, the blockheads have gone on negotiating with me just long enough to enable Hope Grant to bring his entire army up to this point. Here we are at our base, established in the heart of the country, in a capital climate, which, with abundance of food around us, our army is in excellent health, and these stupid people give me a snub, which obliges me to break with them. Elkin spoke to Go, and they both agreed to go up the Beihe River into Peking. The closer they got to Peking, the more the Chinese court officials panicked and sent words to stop, promising all the terms would be met. Elgin, at this point, was too fed up to stop. Meanwhile, the emperor was in a fight-or-flight panic. His generalissimo, Prince Sang, prepared what he could to defend the capital if it became necessary. Chinese negotiators were finally able to get the Allied forces to agree to meet in Tiangzian, halting their advance to Peking. Negotiations began between all parties when something occurred. Parks was riding from Tiangzian to Tianjin to confer with Elgin about negotiations when he noticed Prince Sang's cavalry was massing nearby, hiding behind a cornfield. The force was occupying Jiangjiwan, a site promised to the Europeans for their troop lodging. Parks suspected it was a trap and went to find a colleague named Locke. Both Parks and Locke were captured by the forces of Prince Yang and taken hostage, eventually imprisoned at the Board of Punishments in Peking, where they were interrogated and tortured until the end of the war. Prince Yang knew a final clash was inevitable, and he began to dig in in Zhang Jiawang. He amassed a three-mile-wide cavalry force serving as a roadblock against the Allies from the capital. Tseng had 20,000 men to defend against the Allied force of 1,000 French and 2,500 British. The Chinese had bows, arrows, and a handful of jingals with some firelock muskets, while the British had Einfield rifles. Tseng's strategy was to encircle the enemy, then go in for the kill, based off of older medieval tactics. On September the 18th, 1860, the Chinese spread out and the Allies immediately took advantage of the enemy's weakened position. General Du Montauban borrowed a squadron of Sikh and Spahi, these are Arab horsemen, from the British and attacked Sang's left flank, while the French infantry assaulted the town of Zhang Jiawan. The Sikh and Spahi horses were huge compared to the Mongol ponies, and the Allied cavalry began to penetrate the Chinese troops. The Chinese fired at them with their gingals and their firelocks. However, the French were just obliterating them with the Armstrong field guns. The Armstrong's Exploding shells caused such a panic, the Chinese cavalry began to retreat to a nearby river where the Sikhs and Spahis hunted them down. Sang lost 1,500 men. During the battle, the Allies lost around 35, which caused a you know, serious defeatist mentality for the Chinese forces at this point. Pope Grant allowed his troops to sack Jiangjiwan, and the general considered it reparations at this point. On September the 21st, the Allies took Tongzian, in the flanking movement, spearheaded by the French, the Allied forces then noticed Chinese troops massing up to defend the bridges of Bali Giao, which was on its way to Peking. The Anglo-French cavalry skirmished with the Chinese, then began beating them back with artillery. General Bao, who commanded the Chinese forces, sent word to the French that if they continued their attack, they would kill the French hostages that they had acquired at the early days of the war, in particular a cleric named Abbé de Luc. De Montauban pressed the attack without hesitation, gunning down the men on the bridge, upon which General Bao killed the hostages. He made do on his word. 
The Anglo-French cavalry overran both bridges, annihilating the Chinese cavalry, and the infantry shot back in a doomed fashion. Three French died as a result, with over 1,000 Chinese dying in this mismatched battle. Having lost Tongxian and Zhang Jiawan, Prince Seng now panicked and fled the capital, leaving Peking completely open. Peking's only remaining defense was her thick walls, um, 40 feet high and 60 feet thick, bristling with towers which housed defenders armed with jingals. The emperor had fled to Rihi province with his younger sibling, Prince Gong, left in charge. Prince Gong sent word that the hostages, notably our old friends Parks and Locke, would be beheaded if the Allies assaulted Peking. By October the 6th, 1860, the Allies had massed up a heavy artillery necessary to blast a hole in the walls of Peking. In the meantime, the French and British agreed to march around the city in opposite directions and meet up at the Summer Palace. I guess this was like some kind of competition. Now this is where we get to the most significant part of the story, and this is about the Summer Palace, known in Chinese as Ming Yuan the gardens of perfect brightness. These were complex, a complex of palaces, and yes, that's plural, which consisted of the garden of perfect brightness, the garden of eternal spring, and the garden of elegant spring. They covered over 860 acres together. These things were so big, they had man-made lakes built in them, which were used for mock naval battles in which the emperor would play war games. There were halls, temples, galleries, pavilions, centuries of artwork, antiquities, vast libraries, and a literal storehouse of silver, gold, and jewels, and other riches. It was centuries of tribute the emperor received from barbarians. The French force made its way to the Summer Palace first, where they were attacked by 500 unarmed eunuchs screaming, Don't commit sacrilege! Don't come, in with, don't come within the sacred precincts! The French ended up shooting most of them, and the rest fled in terror. Uh, the French then began looting the Summer Palace en masse. One French officer snatched a pearl necklace whose gems were the size of marbles, and it sold in Hong Kong for over $3,000. The French, by 10 p.m., pocketed as much artwork, jewels, gold, and silver they could muster and ran back to their camps. Montauban left two companies of marines to prevent Further looting, um, the British arrived on October the 7th, seeing the French tents filled with jewels and plunder, and the French soldiers were reportedly walking around wearing them. Hope Grant had no hope of stopping his own men, who then began to loot the Summer Palace in a similar fashion. On October the 8th, Hope Grant demanded that de Montemann split all the gold bars they found in the palace equally. Pope Grant then attempted to restore some discipline by ordering a public auction of the surrendered prizes. So the British auction ran from October 11th to the 14th, and each private ended up with about $17, an officer about $50. The French let their men keep what they stole, and interestingly, Baron Rothschild had an outstanding order with one French officer to buy anything he could get his hands on. Elgin finally arrived at the gates of Peking on October the 7th, horrified by the looting, but unable to do anything about it. Once negotiations began, Locke and Parks were transported to Gaomiao Temple in North Peking, where they received excellent treatment compared to the torture and interrogations of the past months. Prince Gong sent word to Elgin that the stat of their status, and Elgin was, you know, in joy because he assumed that they had already been executed. 
Elgin was obsessed at this point with the fate of all the prisoners under Chinese control, and this greatly influenced his negotiations. At this point, the Chinese used the prisoners as leverage while the Allies held the Summer Palace as their hostage. On October the 8th, Parks, Locke, and diplomatic prisoners were freed as a result of enormous pressure from Elgin. Less than 24 hours after their release, the Allies positioned 13 field guns opposite of Angtung Gate and posted placards threatening bombardment if the gates did not open. It seems that the rest of the prisoners did not matter as much. Elgin gave them until noon of October 24th to comply. The gate opened, Elgin and 500 men marched into the city as conquerors. 19 remaining prisoners were freed, 10 others having died after being forced to kneel in the summer palace courtyard for days without food or water. Their hands had been bound by moistened ropes and leather straps that shrank to cause excruciating pain. After a few more days, the Allies learnt more grisly details of the prisoners' plight. Many prisoners were bound with ropes and chains for days exposed to the elements. Gangrene and infections were rampant amongst the survivors. The fate of the prisoners pushed Elgin over the edge, and now he plotted for revenge for all the atrocities. But his revenge would have to be bloodless. Now please bear in mind with me, as this is apparently how Elgin justified his actions. Elgin believed he had to restore British honor through a symbolic and concrete fashion. He knew he could increase the demands of the treaty, but something more needed to be done for the atrocities against the prisoners. Elgin's solution was to cost the Chinese face, but not their lives. He was going to burn to the ground the Summer Palace, one of many places the prisoners had died as a result of being tortured. Elgin's arguments for his actions was that the debauched and ailing ruler, Emperor Xiangfeng, had never taken any responsibility for the atrocities performed on the prisoners. Xiangfeng had lived in a life of superic luxury, addicted to opium and indifferent to the people's plight, while his Mandarin bureaucracy ran everything. Elgin stated that the people of China would not take revenge for burning of the Summer Palace down, for these were inanimate objects which they never even got to see or enjoy. Elgin saw the punishing of the emperor being a personal one if he did so. To be honest, I find this event is very similar to the burning of the Library of Alexandria. It is an absolute tragedy. Centuries of history were lost while this summer palace was burnt. It is rarely talked about in the West, but has never stopped rankling the Chinese people. Through the Nationalist regime and even in the People's Republic today, the ruins have never been fully restored as a reminder of European aggression. On October the 18th, 1860, the burning of the palace began, bringing an end to the Second Opium War. The Treaty of Tianjin was ratified by Prince Gong in June, and it included China formally signing the Treaty of Tianjin, because remember, the emperor dodged this, Tianjin becoming an open port of trade, Kowloon to be handed over to Britain, which expanded Hong Kong, freedom of religion to be established in China, British ships to be allowed to continue the disgusting pig trade, British and France to be paid 8 million taels of silver each, and the legalization, yeah, the legalization of the opium trade. <laughs> Prince Gong was given a rare collection of French coins and an autographed photo of Napoleon III and his empress Eugenie Baigrot. Elgin was rewarded the Vice Royalty of India, a position that guaranteed major profits. He unfortunately died only 20 months after to an aneurysm in Kolkata.
in the same city where Yi died. Kind of symbolic. Emperor Xiangfeng died at the age of 30, only a year after the signing of the treaty. Completely humiliated, he went into seclusion and got himself high on opium, drank wine, and lived with his harem in Reihe. The emperor never returned to the capital and refused to meet foreign ambassadors or his own courtiers. He was so deeply in shame. Prince Sang continued to suffer military setbacks and humiliations. While putting down a violent tax revolt in Shangdong province, Shang led a force of 23,000 against rebels. He was so short on artillery, he began to beg European occupiers to return the guns he had surrendered during the Opium Wars. His pleas were ignored, and the prince failed to suppress the rebellion. He was then demoted, and as a result acquired a salary of $7.5 a day. Queen Victoria received a tribute from the emperor, which was a small dog. The Pekingese breed was bred to resemble the Chinese heraldic lion. She named it Ludi. She also received a jade and gold scepter from Hope Grant, which he obviously looted. So just to summarize a rather lengthy episode, the Second Opium War was a product of the Treaty of Nanking, which was signed after the First Opium War. This was very much the same situation we saw in World War II occurring as a result of the Treaty of Versailles after World War I. The terms of the treaty were too humiliating and harsh on the Qing government. Much like the First Opium War of 1839-1842, to the Chinese lost as a result of outdated technology, lack of good leadership, and an overall poorly structured military. There was also many rebellions taking place at the exact same time, such as the Taiping Rebellion, which further weakened the Qing Dynasty's forces. Now, what does all of this have to do with the Pacific War of 1937 to 1945, you might be saying to yourself? The Opium Wars and the Taiping Rebellion, amongst other rebellions, basically destroyed the Qing Dynasty. They were the stab wounds that eventually bled the old empire out, which caused a social revolution to take place in the early 20th century. The grievances of the Second Opium War and the social upheaval of the illicit drug brought something that would never be forgotten by the Chinese. Britain's territorial claims in China as a result of all of this would mean that the British Empire would have to defend these territories when the Japanese attacked during the Pacific War. So this is where it comes full circle. I hope you uh, survived this long. And that's it for the Opium Wars. Uh, like I said, the beginning of the next episode is going to be on the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, so please stay tuned for that as these two events were, uh, they were concurrently happening. Hope you enjoyed this content. If you've not already done so, please leave a like, subscribe, and or a comment below. And most importantly, stay tuned for next episode. This has been the Pacific War Channel. Over and out.